Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Paul Bailey. Now, Paul is a former member of the Royal Navy and he's now the head of operations for Chelsea City Racecourse. We are sitting in your fantastic refurbished lounge. Thanks so much for having me here today, Paul. Now, Paul, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. It's, uh, it's amazing to see behind the scenes at some of these places. But where did it all begin for Paul Bailey? What's Paul Bailey all about? Where was he born? And how did he get involved in Royal Navy and then come in here? Well, it's, um, it's quite, a, quite a weird start, really. Um, left school, didn't really um, know what I was going to do. So I went up to the Royal Air Force um, careers office in Southend and actually failed, failed a test. So... Um, my brother, who, who's a twin of mine, um, said, look, don't worry, kind of give me that, that encouragement to, to do well because my, my brother and my sister, they both got into banking quite young and, and they're quite intellectual when it comes to money and things like that. And, and I was kind of the other side of the spectrum, um, quite hands-on like my dad, um, you know, and I, was just, I just didn't know where I was going to go. So I took up an option to go to college for a year to learn about public services which in the end was quite boring, um, in and out of college, didn't really take responsibility for myself. So my mum hoofed me up to the um, Chelmsford Careers Office um, one Wednesday afternoon, I think it was, by the order of my granddad, who was and served as a um, engineer in the, in the Royal Navy. He was a mechanic uh, in the engine rooms and that kind of gave me a bit of self-encouragement to, to do something for myself and to, to actually be something. So I'd done the test and before I knew it, I was shipped off to HMS Rally for my eight weeks basic training and yeah, it was kind of all, all kind of downhill from there, really. Where did you go? When you say you went to the Chelsea Careers Office, the one in Duke Street, which was near... Dukes, there used to be one there, and, and I think they might have moved it at some point. But It was that one, yeah. 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 Some good guys in there, actually. Um, and I ended up going back as a leading hand um, when, when my ship uh, went on deployment down to South America. Um, we had too many leading hands on the ship, on HMS Manchester. And um, they said, do you want to go and work for your careers office? So it was perfect. Oh, cool. Yeah. What was your trade? What did you go in as when you, when you joined? So I actually went in as an OM, which is an operator mechanic. And they, uh, back back in the day, we'd done a bit of um, gunnery, a bit of radar, and a bit of um, kind of electronic warfare. Yeah, a bit of everything, really. And, and when you progress and, and, and like one of the series of kind of remits as such, you, you, you move forward. So on my first signal of promotion, it, I, I chose to stay in the in the operations. So like um, radar, ops room, and reporting into officers and... Fantastic. Yeah, it's brilliant. So you've gone from Raleigh. Where did you go to from there? So I went over to Portsmouth 
um, which was the training school for Radar, uh, HMS Dryad, which is now, I believe, the military police school. Um, yeah. Um, so I spent four months there just building on how we can be better operators in the ops room, how we do things properly, just just honed our skills really as, as, as a passed out sailor, um, give us the skills to become more disciplined, uh, you know, more sufficient in your day-to-day kind of activities as a, like I say, as a sailor. Um, it was good, but like all things, they, they go very quickly. Yeah. And unfortunately, the, the, the pals you, you, you kind of build up along the way, after you pass out a dryad, they say, right, Owen Bailey, you're going to HMS Invincible. Owen Ralston, because a good friend of mine, Rowan Ralston, you're going to um, a frigate in Plymouth, you know, so you're, you're then pulled apart and, you know, you do see your old shipmates every now and then, but, you know, you, you're there now as a proper, proper sailor. You're joining your first ship. You've passed out, you've earned your qualities and your qualifications, go into the real world. Fantastic. And was Invincible your first vessel? Yeah, it was, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was good. We didn't really get a first deployment for about uh, nine months. That was um, quite interesting because we was, we was dry docked in, in Scotland, Faz Lane and uh, yeah, a few, few, few places around there. And where was your first deployment overseas? Tenerife. No. Ten, Tenerife. <laughs> Tenerife, I'll tell you. And we, we had, we, we'd just been on... Um, it's not a deployment. <laughs> we, we, we were going to go around the Med and we, uh, we ended up just going over. We'd done a load of exercises in Plymouth. So we ended up going to, uh, over to Tenerife where this is a really cool story, by the way. We um, we went into a bar called Lineker's, famous bar in yeah. Tenerife. Met Ricky Hatton. He bought all of us a pint of Guinness because we wanted to sit in there in a bar, but he wanted it. So he said, "Look, guys, let's make a the deal. The deal. I'll buy you all a couple of pints of Guinness each." And until he realised there was twenty of us, <laughs> still bought them. And when I was over at Spurs for the uh, Anthony Joshua Usyk fight, yep. he was watching his son Connor fighting, who won. And I reminded him that night when I was with my wife that he bought me a beer. So I owed him a pint back. So I bought him a beer. Oh, how cool was that? It was really cool. And he actually remembered the ship being down there because he was, he was, he loved the military. Oh, yeah. There's not lots of dislike. Not in my world. No, no. Same, same. So you're, you've been to Tenerife. Did you get to other parts of the world? Yeah. So after, after that deployment, we, we went back to Portsmouth. Then we went over to the Med. We done a Med deployment. Then we went to, up to the Bembecula, done a Baltics deployment. The most interesting one was the Gulf, or in and out of the Gulf, um, which was quite tough. I joined the Art Royal, where again, same sort of deployments, Med, in and out of Gibraltar quite a lot, my, my old stomping ground. Um, but it wasn't until really I, I joined HMS Manchester where the deployments got bet- better. You know, we we done the Caribbean, South America, all around the West Indies. Because the art, I mean, you've you, you've just spoken about two of the most iconic vessels in the in the Royal Navy, haven't mm-hmm. you? The in, Invincible and the Art Royal. Yeah. What year was this? Um, I was on. Oh blimey! Um, I left the Navy. Oh God! In twenty. 
13. February 2014 was my 12 years right, officially okay. up. So that's when I joined my first civvy job. But um, yeah, the Art Royal was was very iconic for me because my granddad was served on the Art Royal, and it was it was lovely to be on. You know, great ships company, great people. Um, you know, I, a couple of people that I was on the Art Royal with, I actually w went down to the Falklands on the Dumbarton Castle. Oh, okay. For six months, which was, again, a really, really cool experience. Yeah, six months in the Falklands is a long time, though. Yeah, it was strange, very, very strange. Uh, we come up with some difficult kind of situations out there. Um, small 50-man vessel. Um, it's actually, it was actually condemned, actually. Um, and, you know, you've got the Dauntless class and down there now patrolling. Quite a dangerous ship when you think about it now, but it's very cool. Good, good for life experience. I did a podcast with a guy that sailed down there on the Canberra during the Falklands conference. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, the band that went to war was the name of his book. And uh, his, his podcast was very, very, very moving. I mean, it mm. was, and I've done a few Falklands veterans. And it's funny, they'd do it all over again. All, all the, mm. you know, the stuff that they did in 82, they'd do it all over again. When you're in the Falklands, was there still the hangover from the from the 82 conflict? Oh, it's talked about every single day. Yeah. It will, it will be something that will never be forgotten down there. Um, there's memorials everywhere. And if you're, if you're um, in a position where you don't think about it, I think you're in the wrong place. Yeah. You know, my, my, I wanted to go down and I needed to get a, a break away from the UK, to be honest. And, and the mundane, I get kind of bored very quickly. And I went down there and it just blew my mind, the kind of, what it was all about, you know, the 12 hour journey to the Ascension Islands from Bryce Norton, and then stopping for a few hours and then traveling another 12 hours to the Falklands and, and landing onto this island where there's zero activity, basically. You know, you've got Port Stanley where there's, um, a tiny, tiny population, lovely hotel, but it's like Legoland. It literally looks like Legoland. Lovely place, lovely people, but it's just, you know, that you, you drive from um, main base over to Port Stanley and there's still signs there saying live live landmines. Yeah. That's how close it is yeah. to, to, to the Falklands War. I think they've, they finally cleared the last mine, I want to say 10 months ago. Really? They reckon, yeah, wow. 10 months ago, which is quite a legacy, isn't it? When you think mm. about it, I was watching a programme about Ukraine the other day. Millions and millions of mines have been laid in, in the Ukraine mm. and because our sappers are teaching the Ukrainians to, to try and remove yeah. them. Yeah. When you finished at the Falklands, how long before you actually transitioned out of the military? Well, I, I was on a, a couple more ships before, before that. Um, but I had, I left, I was on HMS Bristol for, I was at GCHQ for. What, in Cheltenham? No, uh, Watford. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I was there for a year and a half, decided to put my notice in while I was down there. And, you know, it, it was a no brainer to, to keep me away from being at sea because, uh, you know, when you put your notice in, like most people, you, you only serve 12 months notice. Yeah. Um, which is great, actually, because it gives people a good 
transition period to, to kind of sort their life out, finances and get themselves a job. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, I was on the, the Bristol, a training ship, looking after trainees and um, the quartermasters on there. And it was probably that time in my life where I was kind of worried for the first time because Navy and forces are home. Yeah, they are home, yeah. And that's where your brotherhood is. That's where it started. That's where, that's where you feel safe. Yeah. You know. Well, you become institutionalised, don't you? You, yeah. you go to the mess with your mates. You go yeah, to the pub yeah. with your mates. You understand the closeness and it's an institution. The police was the same. How did you find it when you left the police? Same kind of feeling? I felt it was a bereavement. I f it was almost like I, I was in, in, a, in a bereavement because mm. I'd done 30 years. My brother, my dad, everyone else in the family had been in the old bill. And it was like, you know, it was, it was yeah. tough. But I had the elation because I was getting a pension. I yeah, came out on yeah, a 30 year yeah, pension wow, and you know, happy days from that perspective. But yeah, you, you, you're, you're leaving the camaraderie behind. You still keep in touch with the people. I'm sure you do the same. St I still keep mm. in touch with the people I want to keep in touch with, but it was like a bereavement to start off with. I mean, for me, I don't, I don't get upset that often. And I was, I, I never forget this day. I was on the phone to my wife left um, HMS Nelson handed in my ID card my gas mask and all that kind of stuff and I felt really sad really really sad and she took me down to the pub in Old Lee that afternoon and it was really difficult and I you know this was the yeah I think this was just before Christmas and I, and I had to snap myself out of it because at the time I hadn't secured myself any employment I hadn't in, in, you know I hadn't done anything. Wow. I was trying so hard and, you know, getting nowhere, getting absolutely nowhere. Did you do a resettlement though? Done resettlement, yeah. I'd done, um, I'd done some A-levels, uh, got, got my knee boss qualification, done some really good stuff. But, you know, it just wasn't clicking. And in the civvy world, you kind of know the fluctuations of work and when the, the, when the doors kind of open, you know, I jumped straight on LinkedIn because I believe that's a really good kind of networking yeah. platform, but I didn't use it to my best ability. You know, I was still raw, you know, between 2013, 14 to now, so like 10 years ago, I've gained so much knowledge because I've had to. Yeah. Not because I want to, because I've had to. And it's been tough. And, you know, I still speak to a few old shipmates and quite a few, believe it or not, are dead. And they, they just haven't know, known what to do themselves. You know, I see, I'm not on Facebook, but I see old posts and people reaching out to me to say, can you reach out to so-and-so, so-and-so, because they're in a bad place. And When you say dead, because they've taken their own lives? They've or? taken their own lives, yeah. Mm. Um, this year, a good, a good friend of mine, unfortunately, up north, um, two years before that, and it's because they cannot cope. No, and it is hard. I mean, you, you, I, I don't know what your, your life was as a, as a youngster um, and what stability you had in your home, but sometimes the, the Royal Navy and the military full stop gives people the stability that they didn't have at the home. Mm. And when all of a sudden that stops, they moan like a drain whilst they're in, yeah. then they exit out and it's, they miss it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. They miss it. I mean, for me, um, one of the main reasons I think for leaving was it was getting a little bit too pink and fluffy. 
Um, you know, whereas when I joined, it was very tough. Yeah. Very tough. And I loved it like that. Yeah. Because, you know, I was, a, I was excuse the language, a little shit. Yeah. And I needed to, I needed that in my life. It's, you know, I had that at home. I had a really good upbringing. You know, my, my dad worked really hard. Um, he had his own business, window cleaner. Um, I was at home with my brother and sister and we had, we had a good life. Yeah. My mum and dad divorced whilst I was joining the Navy, continually worried while I was away and stuff like that. And I just thought, I need a bit of stability now. Yeah. I need that um, arm around me or discipline that I, that I usually have at home yeah. with my dad than now I'm away. And it was, it was bloody excellent. Yeah, no, I, and I, I get it. And as I say, people find that transition out really difficult because they've, that was their family. You know, the, mm. the, how many ever tins of beer they were allowed one a day and all those yeah, sorts yeah. of rules and regulations. And people work well to rules and regulations. Mm. The st that, that's the stability that they need. How did, you, how did your parents take it when you joined the Navy? I mean, you might have been a little so-and-so because, uh, like I say, it, it may have kept you out of jail. I don't know. I don't know the sorts of things you got into. But um, how did they feel about you joining the Navy? My dad wasn't too keen. My dad wasn't too keen at all. My mum my mom was for it she she wanted to wasn't the fact that she wanted to get rid of me but I think she just she was keen for me to just do something you know because I was I was the little scrope that hadn't a clue there was something in there but I just needed something to get that knowledge out of me to get that to get the, the fire in my belly going again draw out the best yeah absolutely and you know, once my dad finally come to terms with it, he was he was all for it. You know, he was and, and to this day, he's still extremely proud of what I've done. Um, my dad lives in Spain now, so he, whenever he gets the chance to go over to Gibraltar, he's always looking out for the ships that are in and stuff like. It's fantastic. It's yeah, really cool. And Gibraltar's a different class, isn't it? I mean, mm. you've just got. I love going to Gibraltar. The history that's wrapped, and there's an irony that the Spanish would be quite happy for us to give up Gibraltar. But they won't give up their part of Morocco. That's right. You know, it's just yeah, that's right. it's, yeah, it, yeah. there's a there's a balmy <laughs> irony there. So you've transitioned out. How long before you got settled into a into a role? Well, uh, I went to applied for um, a job through an ex-military kind of. It, it might have been CTP, yeah, uh, Career Transition Partnerships, yeah. And in fact, it was. And there was um, a job. And the lady called me and she said, look, Paul, we, we spoke to um, uh, the head of operations or the head of uh, event operations up there called Simon Fell. And uh, there's, a, there's a position, a venue operations manager, like head of ops kind of role. And with your, with your background, they're, they, they're, they're looking for an individual that can just sort out what there is at the moment. And this is a long-term project, so they've got oldie kind of guys there that are institutional, are stuck in their old ways, and they do not like change. But they need change now, and they want you to go in there and completely change the lot. And me being me, I needed a job. You know, that was the, that was the first thing on my mind. And I went up there and saw the iconic venue, and and it felt really, really weird because I already felt at home the first. I walked through the old BBC building. And I got on with Simon, who's a good friend of mine to this day. 
like a house on fire. And where was this? This was at the Alexandra Palace. Oh, Ali Pali, yeah. So that was my first job as a civvy at the Ali Pali. Wow. Massive, massive job, massive responsibilities. But they had, they had it in them to take that risk and let me get on with it, which was one of the first kind of learning curves as a civvy, you know, because you can't talk the civvy way. You can't act like the civvy way. You, you have to have a way about you to, to be able to keep everyone around you happy. Yeah. You can't have that institutionalized, like regimented, regimented, do it like this, do it like this. But there's also that break of, you know, the respect level. Yeah. Um, tough, tough job. It took me, took me a good year and a half to, to understand it. You know, the churning of, uh, of events, building up, breaking down events, um, darts, snooker, you know, big concerts, massive, massive weddings, big, big events. And once I got that right, it become a breeze. And it was to this day, the best place I've worked. Is it really? Without foul. I mean, like you say, that Alexander Palace is iconic and mm. every year you'll see the darts in there and people don't realise the amount of work that goes on in the, in the background. Oh, it's, it's unbelievable what they do up there. It's, you know, and, and again, credit to Simon and the team because they work hard every single day. Oh, to, yeah. You know, the battling against the council, the, you know, the, the, it's, it's run by the council and you know the events up there that they bring and it, it, the loop between that part of London to where the football clubs are around them they have to work on individual days yeah. the planning to make that place run is is phenomenal yeah because people don't realise that they'll, they'll coincide their diaries with other venues so that it doesn't overload the traffic in the particular area and there's, yeah, there's, yeah, that's, a, that's there's a lot of work goes on when, yeah. they, when they have an event how long were you there for? Three and a half years. Right. And as I said, best three and a half years so far as my as a civvy. So what made you move then? It's funny. Um, I got headhunted to go into football. And I live and breathe football. I love football. Not just any football though, is it? It's your football. Well, it was Charlton. Oh, oh right. It was Charlton. So I was only there for a year. Um, and... It had its good sides and its bad side. Great for career progression and learning about the operational structures and what goes on in football. You know, I, I had the you know the opportunity to manage the training ground projects going on down there. I managed the ground staff. I managed the security operation, health and safety, the cleaners, um, stewarding operations on a match day, safety officers. So you that's know, a hell of a responsibility. A massive, massive responsibility. Um, you know, and it wasn't like the job I'm about to tell you next. This was like the spit and sawdust of football. Yeah. You know, League One, struggling financially. Yeah. You're trying to juggle P&Ls and work hard with the finance directors and, you know, massive responsibility, you know, considering three and a half years before that, I was in between leaving the Navy and getting my first job as a civvy. Yeah. No financial responsibility. Apart from uh, you know managing a small P and L for labour at the Alley Pally, yeah, to managing multifacet site of a football club, mega job, mega responsibility. But again, they add it in them to to say, look, Paul, you've you've got it, and 
you know, the rest is history. I spent a year there, difficult. But it's another iconic site because The Who played there. I don't know if you know that. No, I it, don't. Yeah, no. The Who, it was one of the biggest London... <laughs> it was a, an amazing concert. But, you know, the valley, steep banks, it's, it's a, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a tough, tough stadium. So you go from there to... To the mighty Tottenham. To the mighty Tottenham. To the mighty Tottenham, that's right. What was that like? Fantastic. Biggest, biggest career move so far, um, because of because of what it is. You know, it, we're not talking Dortmund. We're not talking Watford. We're not talking, you know, at any other football club. Don't say West Ham here. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say West Ham because because our owner here is him and his family are West Ham fans, oh, and yeah. I've got a lot of oh, love and respect for him. So yeah, <laughs> I won't upset you, John. Don't worry. <laughs> No, it was it was it was massive, massive move for. Were you at the old old ground? No. So when they demolished the old ground, I was then in talks with Spurs to leave Charlton to come over to Spurs, um, and I was part of the part of the management team and the project team that got the build, got the building constructed. But you, but you had to go and work at Wembley during that period. Yeah, as well. correct. So we give up our stadium obviously for the build. Um, we went over. We had one game at Milton Keynes Dons. Um, Stadium MK, a cup game against Watford, um, which we won. And then, yeah, travelling backwards and forwards to Wembley, which was really cool because, it, again, it was every day's a learning day. And that's for me, I, I was loving it. And I, I wasn't actually doing my job. I, I, you know, I, I was brought in to be the stadium logistics manager, but I was working with all of the uh, safety team. So like Dean Smith, the safety officer over at Tottenham, Good, good friend of mine. Um, he was a safety officer and he had a small team of ops managers and um, steward managers and stuff like that to, to make the operation work from a Tottenham perspective, travelling into a different stadium. So they they done that. Um, I, and I'd go over there and, and learn what they were doing. I could have sat, sat at Lily White House in, uh, in North London every day just learning about my job, but I wanted to go and do something different, yeah, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool, and, and you know, fo football rivalry apart, I do like I like the Spurs Stadium. I mean, it is mm. it's an a, a amazing place. But Wembley, for me, that is iconic. I do wish they'd never knocked down the, the towers. I think oh, you know they were fantastic. That, that, that was just um, yeah. as part of your growing up, and as a West Ham fan, you know, iconic to me. But. Um, you would have been involved in all the all the things at Wembley, though, surely, because as part of the um, build up and take down to make sure that the Premiership pitch was ready, you'd have been liaising with people around the NFL and the concerts and all the other stuff that was taking place there. Correct, correct. We had a good liaison with the NFL. It was it was really cool, to be honest. Um, and again, a, a, an invaluable lesson of of how they deliver their their stadia and how they deliver their their operations um we liaised with them pretty much from day one we we had some really good meetings how they operate and they are a tough cookie oh yeah when they come on site it's their it's their site it's no one else's yeah even though it's our stadium and we take pride in it every day and making the aesthetic look great and everything else no nah, that's out the window yeah. you know i manage five million pounds worth of assets within that stadium day to day they don't give a damn, you know, they don't care if it's five quid. You know, I managed a, 
a waste management operation inside that stadium worth 750 grand. They don't care. All their crap's everywhere. Yeah. As long as we're tidying it up for them, because they're the client, that's all they care about. And there's a lot of money in it, isn't there? I mean, the oh, well, NFL, yeah. NFL I, I, I've seen that um, DAZN, they're, they're flogging packages now, and it's just, it's a huge marketing piece. Uh, and that's reflected in the game, the amount of breaks that they have in the game so mm. they can get the adverts on a, in the States. We had a really, really good, um, a really good Armed Forces Day for Remembrance Day. They always seem to pull, the, 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 the bigger stadiums always seem to pull a lot of military personnel. Yes. And, and, and I'd done a drive while I was over there actually to get um, a load of ex-military personnel in um, to come and, um, become stewards and stuff like that on a, on a match day for us yeah. and they did I mean it was completely different to what we have here but you know you're talking hundreds oh and, and probably 25% of that are ex-military yeah and they're, they're great on gates they're great on on, on on the concourse they're great on by the seats yes. and things like that to, to give you a, a great service not just a good service I, I agree because I get frustrated and this is no disrespect to some clubs but I look at the standard of some of the stewards and it's poor you know but with the with the military guys what you get is well, what you see is what you get you yeah, know yeah, absolutely. They, they're unwavering they'll do their job but they'll do it with candor and they'll you know and they'll do it with good grace they know how to deal with the public and as I say some places they just bring in dare I say it, cannon fodder, who oh, get yeah. get ridiculed by the... Yeah, yeah. I, I watch people at some stadiums walking around smoking, all right? So I've got a real big thing about it. Yeah, Nobody yeah, yeah. ever challenges them. No. So, I mean, we were very, we, we were quite on it over at Spurs. But I must say, I mean, a couple of times I'd, I'd take pictures and videos of some of the stewards and... I mean, they all do it. You're right, it's cannon fodder. They, they, because the country is desperate for labour, yes. what they do is they don't go for a, a correct vetting process. You know, rather than get um, Joe Bloggs, ex-military, served this, 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 they'd, they'd rather get, um, you know, Joe Average that lives down in Edmonton, two minutes away from Spurs or wherever, that can leg it up quickly that's got no passion, no drive, you know, will, will never dress as smart as, a, as an no. ex-military personnel, you know, just scroty kind of look. I mean, coming from my background and, and, and where I, my journey, presentation is, is everything. Standards are everything. And standards are absolutely crucial. And sometimes you, you know. You, it eats you though, doesn't it? It does. It, it eats it, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It eats me, I look at the modern police service and it eats me, and it's not their fault, it's what they're given. And I just, I, I really believe in standards, clean shoes, you know, mm, looking mm. the part. If you look the part, even if you're not, people actually believe that you are. Correct, correct. I mean, that's the, one of the good things about me being in this position here. You know, I've got real good support from my owner, real good support from my directors. And on, on event days, um, our commercial director just be saying to me, Paul, one biggie today. Just go out there and make sure all the stewards, all of the coaching staff or who, whoever's coming on site for the day are dressed immaculately. And if they've like one side of their shirt's coming out, I'm on them straight away. Custard down their trousers, right, get it off. Do your shoelaces up. Do your top button up. 
tighten your tie up. Just look the part because it's first impressions. And, and the customer pathway is very important. Mm. I mean, we, we, we'll come on to where you are now. I mean, Tottenham is a big part of you because you're a, you're a Tottenham fan. What was that like leaving your, your, your theatre of dreams, if you like? That is, what, um, and I mean, you'd have dealt with Daniel Levy and all that, all that, that lot. So it was, it was, it was a breath of fresh air, believe it or not. Because when I was over at Charlton, I stopped enjoying football. Right. And I went to, we, we, I transitioned into Tottenham, went over to Wembley, and I could watch most of the games. When we went into the new stadium, I was there every single game putting the hours in, putting the work in, putting the shifts in. And then, you know, you have this excellent team playing out on the pitch, earning 200 grand a week. They lose a game. We've put all the hard graft in and yet they walk off, they don't care. And if only people like that, some of them will take a minute and think, God almighty, you know, there's people out there that would absolutely give everything for yeah. this kind of money. You know, one of my biggest hates, I mean, I was out in the Caribbean on the Manchester and it was a World Cup and all the England players were moaning that the wives couldn't get out there and this, this, this. And I'll never forget it. They had a military protest. So hang on, John Terry, Frank Lampard. What about all these guys that are dodging bullets in Afghan? Yeah. What about all these police on the streets that are stopping riots that are on three grand a month, yeah. two grand a month? Yeah. What about, you know, the normal people of society that are trying hard and you're moaning that you cannot get your wife into a stadium? Be real. Well, and and you're, you're quite right, because when you look at the cost of football now mm. as well, a high percentage of your weight, not only on the, the ticket, but on the experience, you know, buying a beer, getting a burger and all that. You know, the prices, and I understand why the yeah, prices yeah. are high, because if you look at Wembley, for instance, they'll have 2,000 members of staff. Mm. As a member of the public, you walk in there to buy a burger, you don't think that all those people around you have got to be paid. No, no, no. So that's why the, that's why the prices are, are up there. But it, if people are that passionate about their football, they will pay to go and do it. And you're, you're absolutely right. When you um, transitioned away from, from Tottenham, you've come to the brilliant Chelsea City race course. Oh, uh, this, this for me is so far probably the pinnacle. I love horse racing. Do you? I love horse racing. I've got um, a share in a horse. My, my, my um, wife's granddad, um, who's unfortunately just passed, got shares in a few horses. Um, I've always loved horse racing and to be part of something so special here, they're building over the road there, they're going to be um, building a big grandstand. Wow. We're going to have a Soho house kind of building um, over the road, which I can show you later on. Yeah, lovely. The, 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 you know, we've had all of the floodlights reinstalled from the big storm. Um, this, where we're sitting now, has just um, been refurbed. The club, um, where our owner comes up on a race day. This, this is, for me, the best. I love, I love my job. And you have some lovely people come through here, don't you? I mean, I, oh, I've been to a yeah. number of events and yeah. uh, it is, it's, quite, it's quite a spectacle. It's quite an event. Well, we, we, we do multiple events here. You know, horse racing is our primary, obviously. 
Then we have a few concerts throughout the year. We've had some good concerts this year, which we hold clock stock as well, which is 12,000 people come through the door. You get some wrong ones, but you get some really lovely people yeah. as well. Um, and you have, we have a lot of internal events. So like we've got a great internal events team here, um, Anthony and Kate, they're starting to lead on a load of um, foreign weddings and stuff like that now, and normal weddings. And it's just, we're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this place is probably a couple of years from booming. And everything I've learned from joining the Navy as a junior to now, has got me where I am, and and, and I, I will. There, there are certain people out there. My my boss at um, Tottenham, Paul May, who's a director of operations, I'll be him forever in his debt. You know, he got me in the club I love. Simon Fell took the risk when I left the navy from civvy, uh, from military to civvy. I'll forever be in his debt. You know, but this place, I mean, I've got a fantastic owner, really really good guy. Um, it's it's all about the family. It's a really, really, really good place to work. How important do you think the military is or was to get you to where you are now? How, how important was that for your journey? Well, Paul, put it this way, and this is, this, is a, this is easy. If I wasn't in the military, I very much doubt I'd be sitting here with you today. Right. And my wife often says, if I wasn't in the military, I'd probably be dead. You know, the military has confined me to so many special memories, to be structured, to have the leadership skills that I've got. They, they offer you so much. People don't realise it, whether you're a chef, whether you're a steward, whether you're a police officer, whether you're, you know, in that, in that service, a civil service, it will give you great leadership and organisational skills. It will give you the stuff that you need to go outside, go onto the civvy world and and give some some something different someone something different. Yeah. You know, our problem now is and you know, I've only been a civvy for ten years, you know, in two years' time I would have done exactly the same civvy work as military work. But I'm finding that a lot of businesses nowadays are pulling people out of uni and saying, look, this guy's got a degree. Hang on a minute. It's all about the life skills. And what I mean by that is I would take any ex-serviceman over someone that's jumped out of uni with, uh, you know, rocket scientist yeah. qualification or something like that. You know, it's sometimes a risk for Mr. Civvy, but... One thing they will get is professionalism, yep. great leadership, great management skills, and they'll always be on time, always dress well, and always give you 110%. Yep. And that 110% could also be feedback because they're not going to stand back and, no, and no, say no. everything's all right if it's not, no. which is another thing that I, I love with the military. You're great supporters of the Royal British Legion here. Absolutely. And on the 11th of November this year, you're holding a, an event you're having a fundraising event to raise the profile of the Royal British Legion. It's high up anyway, but you've yep. got some great people here. I know that the owner supports them. Uh, what are you doing on that particular day? So at, as it stands, we'll have a, a eight race card. We'll name every single race after something. So that's to be confirmed and actually I might get you involved with that poll. Um, 
we're having separate marquees on site, one being the wardroom, one being one for um, military personnel that are um, just want to drink and don't want to eat. Um, we're going to have a military band here. We're going to have a bugler. We're going to have a presentation. There's going to be a lot of activity on site. Fantastic. This is the first one we're doing. And actually, we, we just want to build on it. So we'd like four or 5,000 through the door. The next year, we want six, seven, 8,000. Yeah. You know, um, we are, um, although we've got the RBL here supporting us, we may have a few people from um, Ticket for Troops um, who we work with as well. Yes. Um, who we'd actually give tickets to for ex-military personnel. Um, and we might have some more um, uh, other military stuff going on. Fantastic. More activity. Fantastic. And you're in a great part of the world when it comes to the military. You, you, you've got Colchester just down the yeah. road, the home yeah. of the powers. And, uh, mate, whatever I can do to help you, I'll be there. That's no, fantastic, Paul. And, 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 and you know what? I've really, really enjoyed today. I'm really glad I've met you. And anything we can do for you guys moving forward, we will. So I've got a question for you. Yes, mate. Um, when I was over at Cholton, um, there was a police officer. can't remember his name. Um, but we actually done a... Uh, we, we had a, a seat removed and a white seat. Um, he was killed. Um, so he was killed in March... 17, I think I'm right in saying, and his name was Keith Palmer, and he was Keith killed Palmer, in the correct. yard um, just outside the Great Hall. And if I remember rightly, it was Tobias Elwood, the MP, that went out to help him, who is also a former member of the military. Wow. wow. And, wow. and yeah, he, he was murdered there, and I had the privilege of meeting him. He's a, he was a friend, of, a, a friend of a friend, Rob Scott, who was on the parliamentary um, support team. But yeah, I mean, he's a massive, um, and of course, Lee Rigby, right behind Charlton. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's horrendous as well. Mm. But you know, there's there's some great people out there who are much maligned. Um, policing and the military has just become political. It's, oh. it's it's not you know they'll 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 bow to political pressures unnecessarily. I would suggest sometimes. But before I go any further, there's something that we say in the police, and it's, I'm going to ask you a question now. Is there anything you'd like to add or to correct in relation to the statement that you made today? No, to be fair, I think, um, I, you know, it's, it's been a pleasure sitting down with you, Paul, and just, just going over some things. Um, I don't know, actually, if you know this, but when Lee Rigby died, did you know Rod Stewart, and thanks, Rod, for this, done two co concerts in Birmingham, sold out two nights only for friends and family of Lee Rigby. I didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. And me, my wife, my father-in-law my uh, and my mother-in-law went up there. He's a great bloke. He's only up the road. Yeah, I've never met him. Oh, I'll tell you a sto my story with him. I was running an undercover job. <clears throat> I was running an undercover job out in Epping and they put me back into uniform for a period of time to run it because there was a number of issues wrapped around it. And I get a phone call and this bloke says, uh, hi, yeah, my name's Lancaster and I'm the estate manager for Rod Stewart. And I ended up going down there and he came walking out and met me and he was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely really? brilliant. And his wife is a special constable in the city of London. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he, yeah, he's, 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 literally, yeah. he's literally up the road from here. But, but mate, listen, without further ado, I'm going to thank you for your time.
and um, hopefully we can meet up again and I'll buy you a beer somewhere. That'd be brilliant, Paul, and it's been a pleasure, mate. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>